0: We're continuing on in our series here, Jesus, the True and Better. And today we get to look at Jesus, the True and Better, David. David. So if he's a favorite figure of yours, uh, you're in for a treat here. In the New Testament, there are many um, titles or names that are uh, given of Jesus or used of Jesus or even that he ascribes to himself. Uh, Particularly, there's a cluster of them that have in the name the word son, So we find in the New Testament, Jesus referred to as the Son of God. This is probably a favorite of modern Christians like us, because in our world, in this day and age, sort of by way of apologetics and sharing the gospel, we really want to defend and promote the deity of Christ. It's not just that Jesus is an historical person who once lived. He is God the Son, incarnate, God in human flesh. And so we kind of like to affirm that. Uh, To affirm the deity of Christ, we also see another uh, title uh, used of Jesus. This is uh, the Son of Man. And this title is a favorite that Jesus uses of himself. And at first, we might hear that and think about it and go, well, if Son of God highlights his deity, then Son of Man must highlight his humanity. And while there's truth to that, there's much more to that particular title. It's actually a reference from Daniel chapter 7. And so Jesus is claiming something that Daniel the prophet had said about one who would come. So he's claiming something big there. That's a sermon for another day. Try to preach only one sermon today. Always a challenge. And then thirdly, we find the son of David. And this is used primarily in the Gospels. uh, And when it's used, it seems to be somebody who encounters Jesus and sort of speaks what they believe to be true about him, uh, that he is God's promised Messiah, the son of David. So that seems to be how we see that when used. But when we look at this construct, son of God, son of man, son of David, you know, we kind of have to ask ourselves, uh, what does the word son mean here? Or in the uh, immortal words of Indigo Mentoya from The Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? <laughs> The expression son certainly refers to one's biological offspring, their immediate child. But in the scriptures, it can also refer refer to one's line, one's lineage. Uh, It it can speak of sort of the family name, one who carries on the family legacy. And it's this title, Son of David, that is going to be helpful for our our study uh, this morning. Because after all, we want to look and see how is David a type of, How how is it that he foreshadows or prefigures Jesus Christ? In other words, what is introduced to us in David that finds a future and fuller fulfillment in Jesus? And so that's our our study this morning. So we're going to start in the Old Testament, left side of your Bible, uh, if you want to turn to 2 Samuel 7. And uh, what we find here is the Davidic covenant, promises made by God to David about his God's long-term redemptive plan. So we'll look, first of all, at Solomon, sort of the immediate implication uh, of the Davidic covenant and immediate offspring of David. And then we'll journey to the New Testament, and we'll look at how the apostles, in particular the apostle Peter, uh, understood these early promises to David being both historically filled, but also having a greater and fuller fulfillment in Jesus. So 2 Samuel 7, and I want to give you a little bit of context here, because we're just parachuting into this passage here. Um, We find young David, and he is anointed king by the prophet Samuel around the age of 15 or 16, which I think is way too young to be king. Uh, We've got uh, teenagers in our house we're still working on do your own dishes right away. So I don't think any of them are ready for king or queen status. David's anointed at 15 or 16. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons. He's referred to in 1 Samuel. Oh, it's a great line. It's a great Hebrew word that they refer to him. It's katan. And before you start thinking of a board game, it's not a board game. It, it means, it's translated for us, the youngest. But it's more pejorative than that. It's kind of like the little one, the little fella, the pig, pib squeak, the runt, You know, it's not just the last one born, it's the runt. That's actually how Eugene Peterson translates it in his book or in his work, The Message. He refers to uh, David Catan as the runt. Um, But in spite of his small and unimpressive stature, David is anointed king. um, After God ends up giving kind of a correction to the prophet Samuel, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God knew David's heart. And even though he was the runt now, he was going to be a giant and a giant slayer later, right? So David is anointed king, but it would be another 15 years before he would ascend the throne. Uh, So apparently he's got to bulk up a little bit first. Uh, And so the Lord would have him serve under King Saul. And then, because of Saul's jealousy of him, David would have to flee because Saul basically tries to play human darts with him and other dangerous games. And David goes on the run and he is in flight from King Saul. And then we find a battle going badly, and King Saul decides he's going to just fall on his own sword. Then David finally would ascend the throne 15 years after initially anointed. That's a long wait. That's a long wait. So apparently he's bulked up a little bit now, right? He has, but not just physically, he's bulked up spiritually. He's grown, he's developed. Um, His initial, actually the funny thing is the guys that he was leading while he was out in the wilderness, um, I'll call them a ragtag group of rowdies. That would be my description of them. The scripture calls them by three names. He describes them as doubting, discontented debtors. That's not what you want to plant a church with. You know, that's not the group you're looking for. But that's David's first rule, and he develops on that. So finally, he ascends the throne after waiting 15 years. His first, the first site of his reign is in Hebron, where he rules for seven years, and then eventually over into Jerusalem. And he leads the troops in. He defeats the remaining Jebusites, and he builds his palace. And there he would rule for 33 years, for a total of 40 years as Israel's greatest king. And I'll just tell you, I have had a lot of fun. If it doesn't show, I've had a lot of fun going back over the David stories. First and second Samuel, I've been reading through them this week. And if you don't have a reading plan for the summer, if you don't know, you know a section of the Bible that you're going to regularly, can I just encourage you? First and second Samuel, read the David stories. Just really fun. So that's where we pick up on his story. David establishes his palace in Jerusalem. He, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of God. And so we can almost imagine David in his palace sort of peering out the window, looking out, surveying the land, surveying his kingdom. My wife mocks me all the time because I'll do this. I'll go over to the window and look at the woodshed, especially when it's full, and I'll just stand there and go, that looks great. And she'll come over and say, are you here surveying your kingdom? Just the woodshed. That's about all the control I have right here. But you can imagine just surveying all of this and delighting in it. We're here. We're in the place God has has made for us. Enemies are defeated. We have peace. We're flourishing, and he's in his palace, and everything looks good. And then his eye casts over one thing that really bothers him. 2 Samuel 7.1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. Now here we come to the covenant language here, so pay attention to this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to, King, to David all of the words of this entire revelation. So the first thing we see here is that God's covenant with David is just chalked filled with promises, good promises, good things. First of all, <laughs> he promises David an enduring house. And as we saw last week, as we were talking about Moses, uh, the word house really has a semantic range. There's a range of different meanings that it can have. And so with Moses, right, he was faithful in all of God's house, but Jesus was the builder of the house. House can be a specific dwelling, a home, right, your address. Uh, It can also mean household, including the home, your children, the furnishings, the dog, huckleberry, and if we really stretch it, the cat might even be included in household, might be, that... Might be heresy, though. (laughs) It can mean church. This is our house of worship. And it can mean something kind of all-inclusive, right? A building, a place, a people, place of worship, all of that. Uh, I'll illustrate with this. Uh, We have any Yankee fans in here? Any of you willing to admit it? You're a Yankee fan in public? There probably is five or six. They just don't want to admit it. (laughs) Well, the old Yankee Stadium in the Bronx had this title. It was known as the House of... That Ruth built, right? It refers to more than the stadium. It's about the stadium and the team and the success and the followers and all of this. And so that's kind of uh, this reference that we see here to house means something more like that. It's big. It's inclusive. It's expansive. It's, I think, even bigger than David initially realizes. Uh, secondly, God promises David an enduring lineage. And this one's, I think, a little harder to see here. It's a little bit vague, we know that, first of all, he's going to have a son. There's an immediate biological offspring. Uh, we see that this is a son who actually is going to do wrong and receive discipline and correction, so we know it's talking about someone like Solomon. But there's also something enduring about this son. So there's, there's a far-ranging son, too, and so we're, there's kind of a kernel of something planted here, but it gets developed as we go through Scripture. So there is this enduring lineage. And then, thirdly, we see God promises David an enduring kingdom. In fact, as I was looking over this just this morning, kind of praying through my notes, I was looking at my word there, enduring, and it might be a little bit thin and just a little bit small. Because how long does this kingdom last? What does the text say? Forever. It says forever. Um, I was thinking about this. That's a big promise. That's a big covenant. That's even a bigger promise or covenant than husbands and wives make to one another for marriage, isn't it? Um, when I do premarital counseling and a, a new couple comes in, I'll often ask some questions, and some of them at the beginning are test questions. Some of you are paying attention now. You're like, okay, if i got to go in for premarital counseling, I need the answers, so what do we got? One of the questions I'll often ask is, how long does marriage last? and these two love-struck bunnies sit there and go forever and i have to say no it doesn't it lasts until death parts you you get to walk an earthly life here with someone but you're wed to god eternally i i can hardly conceive of this but in heaven i will not be married to my bride amy that's weird to think of we'll pass Hey, Amy, how's it going? (laughs) But we will be so devoted to the Lord and to his worship in his name that even our spouse will pale in significance. That is how great it will be to be with the Lord. And this lasts forever, an enduring kingdom forever. And then along with that, David promises this enduring or eternal throne. Secondly, in the covenant here, what we find is that there is a, there's an initial fulfillment or what we'll call a near fulfillment through David's immediate son, Solomon. And this is how it often is with prophecy. Oftentimes, there is an immediate fulfillment, but then years or even generations later, there is a subsequent and fuller fulfillment. So I'm gonna bring up an unlikely theologian to you this morning, but someone who can really help us with this. His name is Grover from Sesame Street you guys remember Grover? Do you remember the sketch where he walks up to the camera and says, near. near? And then he backs up. Far, right? My Grover voice is not very good. And actually, that's a pretty good look at oftentimes what we find in Scripture or, even, or in prophecy and even sometimes in covenant, a near immediate fulfillment, and then a far and subsequent and fuller fulfillment. And that is what we have here. So I want you to turn to 1 Kings 8, if you would. So now we're going to Solomon. We're going to look at his, his words and his reflection on what God has done with his father, David. <clears throat> 1 Kings 8, verse 14. Hey, Ethan, could I trouble you for a glass? Can I get some water? I think it really is smoke. <laughs> 1 Kings eight fourteen. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his own mouth to my father David. Thank you very much. We're going to pause right there. A little station break. There's no graceful, grace, graceful way to do this. All right. Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there. So I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. I've got to interject something here. In verse 18, I find this fascinating. Um, we read initially that David wanted to build a temple, right? Bothered by seeing, hey, I'm in this cedar-lined palace and God's out in a and so I want to do this. He inquires of Samuel. Samuel gives him the freedom, go for it. If you're walking with the Lord, he's with you. You have the freedom to do that. And then God changes his course, and we might initially think that, well, God slapped his hand and said, no, you're not the kind of guy that builds for me. But he's not, he's not disciplined. He's not wrong in wanting to do so. And I think this, correction, or this affirmation here is really wonderful to see. David was right to have this in his heart. David, a man after God's own heart, what was important to him was that God's name would be honored. And that's what directed his action. But nevertheless, we see this fulfillment, this immediate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. we to hit these really quick. Solomon builds the temple. Solomon is David's own son, his own flesh and blood. Solomon expands the kingdom. It flourishes. And we would also say that Solomon was a wise and successful king. Now, I know there are plenty who don't like Solomon. In fact, especially the ladies, I think, don't like Solomon. And there's some good reasons for that. Nevertheless, he was one of the most successful kings in Israel's history. Even the queen of Sheba who came to visit, it says that she came with testing questions and she ended up saying that not even half of what I heard about you is as true as as actually it is. You surpass all that I've heard about you. How happy must your people be? So Solomon rules from 970 to 931. And then immediately after his death, there's a schism, and the nation is divided. Uh, a few hundred years later, northern kingdom would fall to Assyria. A couple hundred years later, Judah would fall to Babylon. And I, you have to just stop and think here for a moment. H- how, does this, how does this fall out with, David's, with the, uh, the Davidic covenant? How can God promise this enduring nation, this enduring reign, this enduring kingdom, and yet we have this collapse? The temple is destroyed. The people are carried off. The Ark of the Covenant, gone. So you can imagine just this question from Israel, what is happening? Is the covenant off? Is God done with us? What we find is that this has happened because of Israel's idolatry and their disobedience. The city of Israel is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. They're carried off into exile. And yet in the midst of all of this, there is hope. The prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, who had to come and deliver this hard word and tell them that judgment was coming, also gave them a hopeful message. It's kind of like a parent sitting down with a child saying, yeah, you're about to go into timeout for 70 years. But it's okay. I love you. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you back. And I have something really good in store for you. And in fact, what Isaiah says I think is particularly sweet Considering our topic this morning, you know this passage. It's Isaiah 9, verse 6, where he announces the hope of a future son. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, we see this covenant continuing. This is part of the covenant language. This isn't just a random thing that he dropped in. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God— Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is good news right in the midst of a bad situation. But it is a reminding and sort of a recommitment to the covenant that God has already made to David, and it becomes the hope of Israel. Even though the covenant has been interrupted, it's not terminated. God will be faithful to His word, even though His people have not been faithful to Him. One will come who will make, uh, will restore the throne of David and the kingdom of David. He will—you'll like this—he'll make Israel great again. <laughs> Is that funny? <laughs> Blue hats, M I G A, mega hats. I thought it was funny. First service didn't think it was as funny as I did. We find additional prophecies about this, and then 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. And then Jesus emerges on the scene. The first century hopeful Jew who encounters him begins to see all of these signs and promises of this coming son, and they see them in this person. A child is born providentially in Bethlehem, the city of David. This child is born of parents who are of the line of David. This is made explicit in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. And there also seem to be some other echoes of David I think it's interesting, I could be just seeing things here, so I hold this open-handed, but I think it's interesting that we find Jesus, 12-year-old, left at the temple by his parents. If you've ever been left at church, you're in good company. Jesus was left at church one time. They come back to get him, and he basically says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And we're told about the way he just impressed the religious leaders there as he spoke about the law. Whose child is this, they're asking. And then we hear almost nothing about Jesus. Luke 2.52 says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's it. We've got 12-year-old Jesus and then 30-year-old Jesus. I find a little echo or a little correspondence there with the anointed King David and patiently waiting until he ascends the throne. Again, I may be seeing things, but I wonder about that. But overall, when Jesus emerges on the scene, the people begin to ask, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? And so the early witnesses of Jesus who believe this, they see his miracles, they hear his teaching, his wisdom, his perfect life, and they believe this is the one. And they affirm it, and they are excited and hopeful that he will ascend the throne, dispense with Roman rule, and that they will see the kingdom of God as they had heard uh, in its fullness. And we see that this is expressly on their mind as Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. In Matthew 21, it says this, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. The son that was promised, there was an initial fulfillment, a long-term hope, and now we think he's here. We think this is the one. So as you can see, Son of David is clearly this messianic title. And some believed that Jesus ticked all of the boxes such that he was the one. But then, of course, there is another massive disruption in the expected covenant of God here. Because this same crowd who at the beginning of the week cried out, Hosanna, the Son of David. At the end of the week, they cry out, crucify him. In this incredible inversion, instead of ascending a throne, he's fixed to a cross. Instead of a golden crown, we find a crown of thorns. Instead of a scepter to rule, a spear to pierce the side. Instead of rightful praise, a sign of mocking shame, behold your king, right? The king of the Jews. Instead of glory, glory, a grave. And we look at this and we think, well, how are we to interpret this? God's covenant was set, initial fulfillment. We think this is the one, and now this seems to have gone off the rails. And this was the scenario that just wrecked the apostles days after Christ's crucifixion, right? Remember the two walking to Emmaus who encountered a mysterious figure? And he says, hey, what's up, guys? And they tell him about their disappointment, saying, we had hoped this would be the one who would redeem Israel. And then Jesus tells them in sort of the hermeneutic for our series here, he began to show them from Moses and all the prophets everything that was said about him. So what we find here is the apostles will actually interpret this event for us. Specifically, the apostle Peter And what I will call the best sermon ever preached, not preached by Jesus. We find in his message that there is a fuller and far fulfillment of David's greater son, Jesus. Um, So if you would turn to Acts 2, the Apostle Peter explains this event and how it is still consistent with God's promise uh, of a son to come. So let's just stop here for a moment. What what Peter is about to do is he's about to show us how Jesus is the true and greater David, the son of David, how this actually works. Uh, The promise that God gave to David, yes, had an immediate fulfillment in Solomon, but now a fuller fulfillment in Jesus in a way that we might not have expected or seen coming. Verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. That's a key verse. Note that, verse 27. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. I'm going to pause right there. This is stunning to me. If you had asked me before I had studied and prepared for this message, how much did David know about this future and greater son? I would have said, it's a bit vague. He knows that one is going to come because God promised it. But here, Peter says, no, he knowingly spoke of Christ's death and resurrection. He goes on in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it or Peter's point is that David saw this all along. When David reflected on this covenant that God had made to him, he saw a future and greater son coming, and what made him greater was that his rule would happen because of his death and his resurrection. David saw that. So that's our point. Through death and resurrection, Jesus is a true and greater David, or son of David. Then there's this loaded phrase here. The Lord said to my Lord. Anybody got questions about that one? The Lord said to my Lord. What David is referencing here is sort of a divine conversation. The father speaking to the greater son. After you have done this and accomplished this, you will come and sit at my right hand in power and glory. So he shows how this psalm, even this psalm that David wrote for worship, for Israel's worship, pictures the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glory of Christ. Jesus is the true and greater David. It's beautiful. So I want to bring this to um, kind of a point of application here. What are we to do with this? Now that we know this, now that we know that this is how the apostles interpreted all this, what are we to do? I think, first of all, for the believer, there is an encouragement here in the trustworthy nature of God, that he is sovereign, that he is faithful, that his promises are true, that he will keep his word even when it isn't looking like it. And that happens to us a lot. We look around and think, it doesn't seem like God's in charge. Israel felt the same way. So we're reminded that God is sovereign, that he is still at work, that he is still in control. When there are times of disappointment, like for David, who didn't get to build the temple as he had wanted, God's plan was still in hand. Even in times of defeat, Israel defeated, deported, exiled, 70 years, a really long time out, God's plan was still in hand. Even in times of silence, And you might feel like, man, it's been weeks since I've had a good devotional. Why am I not hearing something for the Lord. Israel had 400 years of silence. Even in times of great mystery, great loss, and what looks like great evil, such as we saw with Jesus at the cross, the Lord's plan is still in hand. The manifold wisdom of God bringing all things to his desired end. So for the Christian, that's our takeaway here. But there's another one for the unbeliever, because at the end of Peter's message, he has an application for you. It says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So let me just interject this for you. This is a tough crowd for Peter to preach to. This isn't just people who are "Eh, not that interested, tired, bored, whatever wasn't just hot in the room, smoky outside. This is the group that killed Jesus. And he's preaching them to a message saying, you killed the son of God. You killed the son of David. You killed the one you were waiting for as Messiah. They're cut to heart. What do we do? And he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a skeptic this morning, if you've been just asking questions about Christianity or sort of tethering or wondering about it, what we have seen this morning is a promise made a thousand years ago to King David that was met in the near and immediate way in his son Solomon and preserved despite the unfaithfulness of God's people all the way until the point that Christ would come and be this greater son. And the plan of God didn't go off the rails with the cross. That was the plan. And through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he proves himself to be the son of David, the one that God had promised. And the response from all of us has to be that we have to repent of our sin and turn to him in saving faith, for he died for you and he died for me. And no one can be right with the Father except that they respond to this invitation of Jesus, taking his sacrificial death on their behalf. So I want to close this in prayer, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to this, uh, the gospel, uh, to become a Christian, to have your sins paid for at the cross in Jesus. So um, if this prayer expresses your heart, I just, I'd ask you right where you're at just to reflect it back to the Lord. God, I see your great plan in history. I am a sinner. I acknowledge that. I repent of my sin. I acknowledge that you provided Jesus, your own son, the son of David, one who is even greater than David, who by his death, burial, and resurrection can save me from my sin. So I repent of my sin. I turn from it. I thank you that it was punished in Christ. I accept salvation that is applied through him. Help me to become your follower. Help me to learn more of Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. For it's in his name we pray, amen.